electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead this hour, stocks are struggling to hold on to their earlier gains, even with yields down, while gold and the VIX are popping. We took a leg lower after consumer sentiment slipped this morning, and concerns about the Israel-Hamas war remain high into the weekend. Oil up as much as 4% today, not so much that as the U.S. tightening sanctions against Russia. We'll talk to Dan Jurgen about all of it in just a moment. Plus, mortgage rates touching a 23-year high last week. And a former Obama official says it's time for the government to step in and curb their rise. He's here with his proposal to lower rates by a full point. And before all that, let's get a quick check on the markets. Dow's been fluctuating. It was up 327 at the highs, briefly went negative, up 67 right now. S&P's down 15 points, 43.33. NASDAQ has been the underperformer all day. It's down 1%. This despite lower yields across the board. Today, the 10-year down nearly seven basis points from yesterday's close. It's around 463. The 30-year back to below 480. As for bank earnings this morning, shares of JPM, Citi, and Wells all higher on stronger-than-expected results, though well off the highs we've seen earlier. JPM, Wells Fargo, a little less than 3% up. JPM reporting higher than expected net interest income, but CEO Jamie Dimon noting it was over-earning on that figure while simultaneously experiencing below-normal credit costs and that he expects both to normalize over time. Flip it over to PNC, different story there. Shares of the Super Regional are lower by almost 4% after missing on the top line. They beat earnings estimates, but again, their loan loss provisions came in at nearly half consensus estimates, calling the strength of that beat into question. By the way, it wasn't just them. The big banks did this as well. PNC shares are down. And financials are where we kick things off today. Uh, my next guest says he's bullish on the big banks, especially Goldman Sachs. We'll talk to Charlie Babrinskoy, vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel. Also with us, uh, let's bring in Frances Donald. She's global chief economist at Manulife Investment Management. And if I'm not mistaken, out with a recession call today, Francis, that's not going to help bank shares. No, it isn't. But you know what? I get asked all the time, do you see a recession or no recession? Yes, we do have two quarters of negative GDP and an uptick in the unemployment rate. But I just don't think this two-world recession, no recession story is really going to help investors, especially over the next six months. I actually think, even though I do think there's going to be a recession, that for the next month or two, you could have a pretty sanguine macro environment, inflation coming down, growth still strong, the Fed backing up. Don't conflate the economists with the strategists out there. Some of us have both roles. Sometimes those roles diverge. Yes, it's fun that you can wear both hats because that's helpful right now. Um, what, what's been the change for you? Uh, I know time when we've been revising up current quarter or last quarter GDP. Why are you now looking ahead and seeing more declines? It's the rates, Kelly. Those rates, you know, history might not repeat this time, but it's going to rhyme. We really have trouble throwing out all of the standard economic relationships with rates moving this high, credit contracting at the speed and the magnitude that it is right now. The consumer is out of excess savings. 
defaults, delinquencies higher, and a housing market that is effectively completely frozen. We can't get the growth to come above 0%. But again, I think the focus here needs to be not just on do you have two quarters of negative GDP, but where is the momentum for growth moving forward? And I think even though there might be some disparity in recession or no recession calls, you're going to find just about everyone has trouble arguing that growth is going to reaccelerate from this point forward. So the focus, whether you want to believe in that mathematical output or not, is going to be lower growth moving forward and a Fed that eventually gets to pivot. Let me bring in Charlie on that note. He's on the news line. Charlie, uh, what, I, I know you're not a big fan of macro calls. and You've generally been constructive. But what's your take on what the, what's going to happen here in the next six months or so? We think we're getting near the end uh, of this, this cycle. We think the end of the tunnel is inside and it's not an oncoming train. We think inflation is heading towards the, the number. It's not going to get there quickly at 2%. We've told you that for a long time. The Fed was optimistic that it could get there, and that wasn't, wasn't right. But inflation has come down. It's getting down to an acceptable level. And at this point, with all that's going on in the world, the Fed is not going to want to be adding to trouble. So we do think the, the end is in sight. When they signal to the market that they are done raising and the next move will be a cut, that will be perceived as very good news by the market. And we will finally get an end to this headwind that we clearly have had in housing. Although, Charlie, if I'm not mistaken, isn't there some track record for stocks to underperform after the last hike when people kind of realize, OK, the, the, the recession is caught? Have we ever had the end of a tightening cycle where we didn't have a recession onsetting? Well, we're hoping this is going to be that, that case. I think there is a very good case that if in the next three months, um, we get the Fed signaling that they're cutting rates, not because there was a recession, but because we have made enough progress on inflation and because they don't want to add to instability in the world. I think we could get a cut without a recession, and that would be a very good environment, particularly for more cyclical stocks. Francis, anything you'd add to that? Well, I'm in agreement on that trade. The next couple of months, I would trade the soft landing narrative for sure, but I wouldn't conflate the short term with the long term. With the price level shock that we've seen in the past couple of years, I don't think you get those rate cuts unless you see the unemployment rate start to rise. We think that happens in January and February, and that's going to be enough for the Fed to actually cut by mid-year. But this doesn't seem like a Fed to me that will, will cut without the recession. And I think that's one reason why uh, saying that a recession is necessarily the most bearish outcome, I don't think that's the case. A soft landing, stagflation type of environment where you get no growth and no Fed cuts, True. that's worse for most investors than a short-term recession where you get the Fed pivot. Charlie, let me ask you to drill down on the banks for a moment. It's a little disappointing that for the big banks whose shares are up today and also for PNC, we're seeing a decline or at least less than expected uh, buildup in loan loss reserves Maybe they see the, the way you see it, but it seems, uh, seems imprudent. Yeah, that, this has changed over the years. The banks used to be able to take big reserves as almost a way to manage earnings, and the accountants and the regulators have come down hard on that. And so now you really have to show trouble before you can actually take reserves. And right now they're not seeing trouble, obviously outside of, of office in some parts of commercial real estate. So in terms of what's visible... Uh, there just isn't trouble. The, the, the individual um, borrower is still making payments. We aren't seeing mortgage defaults. We aren't seeing corporate defaults. And as a result, they can't take big reserves. And frankly, we don't think big reserves would be justified 
uh, unless we go into the kind of recession that we're hoping we're not going to have. Yeah, J.P. Morgan's loan loss reserves $1.4 billion. That was a billion less than expected. Wells was about $100 million less. Citigroup, you know, about $100 million less. All thanks to our Robert Hum for collecting this. You're more bullish. I know, Charlie, we've talked about Goldman. Um, what, do you, what would you do with the big banks this morning? I mean, do, do they entice you at all, the regionals, or are you just sticking with uh, kind of more of the Goldman and, and Morgan trade? I think you do have to be selective in regional banks. There are regional banks that have big holdings of long-term bonds that they're holding in these hold the maturity accounts and therefore haven't flown through either uh, income statement or balance sheet, and that clearly is nerve-wracking to the market. Uh, Goldman and a lot of the investment banks mark those positions to market much more actively and timely basis. We do love a couple of regional banks. Northern Trust is trading at 11 times earnings. It's got a wonderful asset management business, and that's traditionally traded a premium to the market. It's now trading at a big discount. Bank of Oklahoma benefiting from a very strong energy economy out west. But in general, we you have to go name by name because you cannot buy regional banks in a basket. In a basket. Absolutely. Francis, let me turn back to you as we kind of look at, at the labor market, which has lost some momentum, but not nearly as, as much as expected. Um, when you look to Catalyst for your recession call, is it going to come from the labor market or, or where else? Because it looks like earnings, fourth quarter earnings, that's going to for now be okay. I wish the recession call was coming from one unique factor because then we could just look at upside and downside risk to that one thing. But we do see a pullback in housing. We see a pullback in capital expenditure. And yes, that consumer is already softening. You can look at private credit card activity. That's on its way down. Excess savings are down. Gas prices are doing a little bit better, so that takes some heat off of the consumer. But total hours worked are not looking as strong as they have been before. We do expect the labor market to soften. And a little bit of everything is going to be enough to get those GDP numbers below zero. Not for a huge amount, Kelly. It's not a major crisis call. It's just two quarters of negative GDP. Not great, but certainly not the worst possible outcome. We need to really just, you know, separate out these really bearish recession calls from what the math tells us is not a great situation, but not the worst by any means. All right. On that note, we'll leave it. Thank you both. Really appreciate it today. Francis Donald with Manulife and Charlie Babrinskoy with Ariel. Meantime, while the IEA has yet to quantify the impact of the Israel-Hamas war, it did say the oil market is fraught with uncertainty. That's proving true as crude pops 5% today now after the U.S. imposed more sanctions on tankers carrying Russian crude, saying two companies have violated that $60 price cap. Joining me now to discuss, pleased to be joined by S&P Global Vice Chairman Dan Jurgen. Dan, welcome to the program. Good to see you Thank again. You, Kelly. Likewise, uh, please, it's almost like I don't even want to ask you. I'd, I'd love to hear from you what you make of all the developments in the past week and what it means for the oil market. Well, I think that we already had a tight oil market to begin with. Obviously, what's been hanging over it is the, is the threat of a slower economic growth downturn, higher interest rates. But I think the, right now, what you have is just more geopolitical risk going into the price of oil, volatility. Nothing's happened right now. Supplies are stable. And as you noted, the U.S. government finally is saying it has to you know, crack down and actually demonstrate that sanctions are really going to work if, for exceeding the $60 price cap on Russian oil. So you have two theaters of conflict, Ukraine and the Middle East at the same time. Why do you think the U.S. is choosing now to crack down on Russian oil at a time when we've already seen crude high, pushing down consumer sentiment, as we learned this morning. Um, it's a big risk here to the U.S. It's probably one of the biggest spillover effects. But do you think it's in part because they look at the experience of Iran and how much their oil output has increased and, you know, kind of figure, well, OK, you got to be on this? 
Well, I think, yeah, Iranian production is up half a million barrels a day and, uh, and uh, has found ways to evade sanctions, including shipping through Malaysia. But I think here there's been just this kind of rising discussion about the fact that that, that price cap worked well when prices were below 60 but where they are now, Russia is evading them and is making a lot more money again. So remember, the price cap had two purposes. Keep the oil flowing, but drive down Russian, restrict Russian revenues at the same time. And the second is not happening. And I think it's fine. You want to say that these sanctions are not theoretical. They are going to be applied. And sanctions are something that will make people think twice about uh, trying to evade them. What do you think we should expect for the supply of Iranian barrels into the global market from here on out? Well, I think at this point, uh, you know, we may well see a t an effort to tighten U.S. sanctions. We've seen about the Biden administration holding back on that $6 billion. Uh, and I think that, but it really will depend. There's still the unanswered question about what was Iran's role in this uh, whole event uh, and how much did they actually directly support it. So I think at this point, oil generally continues to keep flowing. But there's going to be the next few weeks are going to be very volatile. And if we have a, a, an escalating violence, then there will be more questions about the flow. But one thing to be said, you know, we're, we're coming up next week to the 50th anniversary of the oil embargo of 1973. Mm. And the exporters, uh, the Arab exporters in the Gulf have no desire, no interest in uh, in reducing supply uh, for political reasons. Well, can you just explain that for a moment? Because they could choose to seize this moment, again, depending on what happens uh, with Gaza and so forth, uh, to say, to, to respond globally and really exact uh, more pain in developed countries like the U.S.? Well, I think if they, the difference is in 1973, the U.S. was on its way to being the world's largest uh, importer. Now it's by far the largest producer. It would be very disruptive of their relationship with the United States. Clearly, they'll be under pressures as it goes on. But uh, I know obviously they've already cut back supplies for other reasons to put a floor or keep a floor under the price of oil. But I don't think that they would have any interest in, in disrupting a relationship with the United States right now, which is very important to them. Is there anything else the U.S. can do? As you mentioned, we're already going at pretty much flat out levels amongst the highest production numbers we've ever seen in this country. We just had the Exxon Pioneer deal. I don't know if you think that will affect uh, supplies going forward, but what other options do we have if we wanted to offset the loss of potentially Iranian and, and Russian barrels to the global market? Well, I think that uh, I think the the, the Exxon uh, Pioneer deal will mean more supply because uh, they're going to apply technology on an even bigger scale to increase recovery. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, there's there's a not a lot that can be done. There's still the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but it's rather depleted right now compared to where it was. And of course, the other thing is, you know, and Kelly, you're pointing to this: gasoline prices go up in the United States. That becomes a domestic political. Uh, problem. There aren't a lot of good choices here. And the number one hope is that with all of the efforts the U.S. is making and others are making to avoid seeing the situation escalate from where it is right now. Any last points or places you would be watching, Dan, into the weekend, maybe in the next couple of weeks, if we remain at this um, this sort of very tight supply situation globally? Well, I think that, first of all, people do not want to go into this weekend short yeah. And I think that's reflected in the price of oil. Um, I think the thing that, you know, to keep your eye on is what happens to infrastructure. Did get much attention, but there was sabotage on a natural gas pipeline between Finland and Estonia. Uh, you know, 
probably Russian, probably connected to the Ukraine war. So I think one thing to keep your eye on is in addition to what happens in the Middle East is uh, this other war that's going on that is kind of faded from the front pages right, right now. And what a headache that would be. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Dan Jurgen from S&P Global. Let's get to the latest in the Israel-Hamas war now. Israel ordering the evacuation of more than a million Gazans overnight. The U.N. warning that will only increase the risks for civilians. Let's get the latest. Raf Sanchez is on the ground in Ashkelon, Israel. Raf? Hey there. In just in the last hour, the Israeli military announcing it has had boots on the ground inside Gaza Covertly, Israel's military saying small groups of what appear to be special forces were operating on the other side of the Gaza fence. They say that they engaged in firefights with Hamas terrorists inside of Gaza, but that this was also a mission designed to find evidence about where these roughly 150 hostages are. We don't know where these Israeli commandos were operating. We don't know exactly what kind of evidence they were gathering, but we do know that these hostages are just unbelievably valuable bargaining chips, human bargaining chips in the eyes of Hamas. And the widespread assumption is that they are being kept in the elaborate network of tunnels underneath Gaza City, other locations across Gaza. Now, this small scale incursion by special forces, likely just a precursor to what we expect will be the much, much larger traditional ground offensive by Israeli tanks, Israeli artillery, and massed, massed infantry. And all eyes are on that midnight deadline, some four hours from now, which Israel has given civilians in the northern half of Gaza to evacuate to the southern end of the Strip. Now, Israel says the northern half of Gaza is full of Hamas military targets, which they will be striking, but it is home to more than a million civilians. And the United Nations is looking at this forced evacuation in horror, pleading Israel with Israel to back down, saying there is simply no way that you can ask a million people to move at such short notice without incurring a massive humanitarian disaster. Israeli strikes continuing on Gaza. There have been more rockets out of Gaza into Israel today, although at a noticeably lower rate. Roth, any word from Egypt, which also shares a border with Gaza and would seem to be the more sympathetic place to take in Palestinians trying to flee from Israel? There is no indication at all that Egypt is interested in taking a large-scale flow of refugees from Gaza. There's no indication Palestinians want to leave Gaza into Egypt. It's one of the deep, deep fears of many Palestinians being displaced again, as they see it, from their own land. From the Egyptian perspective, a big flow of refugees into the Sinai, potentially very destabilizing in an area of Egypt that has already had a problem with jihadist insurgents uh, fighting against the Egyptian military there. Egypt's top priority is to try to somehow stabilize the situation, try to stop a large-scale flow of Palestinians out of Gaza. And that's why you're seeing that the Rafah crossing, uh, which connects Egypt to Gaza, is basically closed to all but a very, very small handful of Palestinians with very specific permissions to cross. All right, Raf, thank you so much for your reporting tonight. Raf Sanchez.
Coming up, House Republicans lost their first nominee for speaker, but another prominent member is throwing his hat in the ring. We'll get the latest from Capitol Hill and look at the policy implications for aid, a potential shutdown and the deficit. Speaking of government intervention, is it time for TARP 2.0? U.S. banks are holding more than half a trillion dollars in unrealized losses after nearly two years of interest rate hikes from the Fed. So what's the path forward for financials? We'll debate that. As we head to break, here's a look at the markets. Dow's hanging on to an 11-point gain, while the S&P and Nasdaq are negative, the Russells as well. Ten-year yield creeping back up towards 464, but below the levels we saw yesterday. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. It's been 10 days since Kevin McCarthy's historic ousting as Speaker of the House, and leadership of Congress remains up in the air. Earlier this week, House Republicans voted 113 to 99 to nominate Majority Leader Steve Scalise to the role, but his run was short-lived. Scalise withdrew from the race last night after failing to get enough support to win a floor vote where he'd need 217 votes. So what's next? Emily Wilkins is on Capitol Hill with the latest. Emily? Hi, Kelly. Well, a lot of fast-moving news here today. House Republicans are meeting now just behind me to hear from the two candidates who are currently running from Speaker. Now, one, of course, sounds familiar, Jim Jordan, who got that 99 votes. He's back up. He's still running for Speaker, and he does now think saying that he can get that magical number of 217. But we also had another candidate actually announced just a little bit ago, Congressman Austin Scott of Georgia. Now, if Scott's name doesn't sound familiar, you're not alone. He's not currently in leadership. Uh, he doesn't have any sort of major role within the conference. Uh, and he actually told us that he did not know when he woke up this morning that he would be throwing his hat into the ring for speaker. And he said that the reason he's doing so isn't because he necessarily wants the job. He told me headed in to the room that if Republicans are going to have the majority that they need to do the right things the right way, and they're not doing that right now. Of course, Jordan still has a lot of support. Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis chatted with us earlier, and she said that while it does feel like Groundhog Day around here with all of these speaker nominees, she is optimistic that the party can come together as long as members get out of their own way. It took five ballots to elect the last pope. And, you know, we're only going on to our second ballot. I urge my fellow Republicans, so please, let's look at the larger picture here. This is not about one individual. It is not about just your petty feelings either. This is about uniting this conference so we can get back to work. 
after the candidate forum, we do expect House Republicans to take a vote on the nominees. At that point, we'll have a better sense how much support Jim Jordan actually has and if he can get to that 217 number on the House floor. And Republicans tell me they're still considering other alternatives, like giving Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry a temporary power to pass bills and legislation. Remember, the Senate gets back next week. We're expecting the White House request on uh, aid and support for Israel, as well as that looming government shutdown next month. Kelly, there's a lot going on. And it's just unclear at this point when we're actually going to see a new speaker. Yeah, I do wonder if McHenry for now is going to be going to be the thing. Emily, for now, thanks. Emily Wilkins. Let's ask our next guest. Is there a chance Republicans can't get a speaker elected ahead of the November shutdown deadline? Our next guest says it could take quite some time before a consensus is reached. Brian Gardner is here. He's chief Washington policy strategist at Stiefel. Good to see you again, Brian. I know it changes hour by hour, but I don't know. Does it look like Jordan can can do it? So he's going to win the nomination today, but I, I am skeptical and I'm going to remain skeptical until proven otherwise that he can get to 217. I just think there are, no matter who Republicans nominate at this point, there is going to be a core group that will say no on the House floor. And you have to get a majority on the floor. That's the number that matters. And I don't think they're there yet. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, Jordan's number is going to be fairly impressive coming out of the Republican conference. But again, that core group that changes by the moment, right? It's not the same nose as before. They're different nose now, but they're enough to block Jordan or somebody else on the floor. So Would the blockage yeah, I think we go through the weekend without a speaker. Through the weekend without the speaker. Yeah, at least. Yeah. Y yes. Would, would, is the blockage now, if the candidate is Jordan, is the blockage coming from moderate Republicans? Uh, are there still conservative holdouts? If it is the moderates, does that serve them? I mean, then then de facto McHenry is the leader. So he, here's the thing. There's there, there's you know, when you had the group of no's against McCarthy, they were united in their antipathy, antipathy against McCarthy, their anger against McCarthy. And they had a bit of a strategy. This group, the, the no group is now morphic and changing. And I don't know what their strategic goals are other than they're they're mad, they're they're pissed off at their colleagues and they're going to get some kind of retaliation against them for putting them through the the whole conference through this before. And then there are those that you alluded to Kelly, those centrists who don't want Jim Jordan uh as speaker of the house who don't want to have to go into a re-election campaign with Jordan. Um, he, you know, he's he's very popular among conservatives, but he's very polarizing to others. So um, you have a bunch of different influences and factors that are driving the nose and their 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 motivations are different. How much gets done if McHenry is given some power to pass bills, for instance, vis-a-vis -vis Israel? Um, does that make November 17th a relevant deadline still? Yeah, so I, I think there is a now a consensus, even among uh, those who didn't like the continuing resolution the last time, that a continuing resolution is going to be necessary. There, there is no way, no practical way, that Congress is going to finish the unfinished spending bill. So they're going to have to have another short-term spending bill and maybe looking at a longer-term omnibus at year-end, which is quite ironic because this is exactly what they rebelled against with McCarthy. Um, but yeah, I think there's a in the short term, there's another CR coming. Um, a a McHenry-led temporary leadership could do a resolution on Israel, but that's about it. It's it's really to keep the lights on and, and would have to be done in a very bipartisan, consensus-driven 
uh, fashion. Again, an, another irony of the whole thing, because the conservatives who booted McCarthy were upset any time McCarthy worked with the Democrats, right? Debt ceiling, other things. What they have now done it, potentially is construct a new leadership that ha that is totally dependent on working with the Democrats. Mm -hmm. So the strategic thinking here is kind of lacking. Well, and now uh, it's almost emblematic of this Congress right from the get-go, you know, to have the narrow House majority, the Senate in the hands of the Democrats, and now almost a, we've grounded to a complete halt. Brian, for now, thanks. We'll check back in after the weekend, if you Thank don't you. mind. Brian Gardner of Stiefel. Still ahead, the SEC has until midnight tonight to decide if they want to keep fighting against a spot Bitcoin ETF. We've got the details and what it means for investors next on The Exchange with the Dow down 57 points. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Bitcoin on pace for its worst week in two months, although it's still up 60 percent since Jan 1. And crypto investors are hoping for a bit of luck on this Friday the 13th as the SEC debates whether to keep fighting against a Bitcoin spot ETF. Let's bring in Bob Bassani with those details. Bob. Hello, Kelly. It is crunch time for the SEC. The SEC has until midnight tonight to decide if it wants to appeal the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that the SEC was wrong to reject an application from Grayscale Investments to create a spot Bitcoin ETF. Now, you'll recall the court ruled that the SEC had allowed a futures Bitcoin ETF to trade already, that a spot and futures Bitcoin were the same products. They were like products. So the court said, you guys approve one, you have to approve the other one. That's the spot Bitcoin ETF. So the, the SEC is in a bit of a pickle. They are allowed to request a rehearing on this, but the federal rules of appellate procedure states that the SEC would have to convince the court that they have overlooked something or they have misapprehended the facts in the case. That's the word they actually use, misapprehended. That's a high bar. Given the ruling <clears throat> against the SEC was unanimous, it's tough to imagine the SEC can come up with some new <clears throat> and novel reasons to turn Grayscale down that hasn't been heard by the court before. So it's a problem. So should they decide not to appeal, they will likely be a force to approve the Grayscale application to convert to a spot Bitcoin ETF. And it's quite possible they will approve all the other spot Bitcoin applications as well. There are currently at least eight other applicants also in line, including ARK's Kathy Wood. So we'll be talking with Kathy Wood on Monday on Halftime Report at 1230 and ETF Edge at 110, uh, talking about Bitcoin tech and the new company she just bought in in Europe. And of course, she's going to give us her opinion one way or another on this Bitcoin ETF. She's a big backer of that. The one thing I would note here, uh, Kelly, is the Bitcoin has been sideways for several months, including the futures. And it's interesting that word that this is likely going to be approved now, forced to on the SEC, is not really moving Bitcoin that much. And a lot of people are wondering why. It's A year ago, this would have been big, big news and would have moved it a lot. But as of now, I don't see a lot of tremendous enthusiasm, although this would theoretically open up a whole new class of potential 
investors. Kelly? Exciting times. Bob, thank you for bringing that to us. We'll be watching Bompasani. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. The uh, first U.S. organized charter flight departed Israel for Europe today. The government is helping Americans who are looking to leave the country. An airline official told, told Reuters the flight departed from Tel Aviv for Athens. White House spokesperson John Kirby said more flights are planned over the next few days. Republicans are meeting again today to nominate a new candidate for speaker after Steve Scalise withdrew his name. Representative Austin Scott from Georgia has jumped into the race along with Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan. It is unlikely a speaker vote will be called on the floor today as the Republican Party says it is still divided. Uh, but Democratic leaders have asked members to stay in Washington, presumably in case a vote takes place this weekend. The U.S. Supreme Court extended its temporary pause on the Biden administration's ability to encourage social media companies to remove information from their platforms, including content about elections and COVID-19. Friday's decision maintained a ruling imposed by lower courts. Justice Alito issued the ruling pending the administration's appeal to the Supreme Court. Kelly, back to you. All right, I'll see you soon, Tyler. Thank you so much, Tyler Matheson. Coming up, as rates rise and paper losses grow for the financials, one veteran banker says it's time to take a page out of the 08 playbook. He's calling it TARP 2.0, and he joins me next to make his case. Welcome back, everybody. That move in the 30-year Treasury yield yesterday was the biggest since the pandemic hit and one of the largest ever, according to Deutsche Bank. These surging yields all year long have resulted in big losses for banks holding Treasuries on their balance sheets. As of the second quarter, which was even before the latest run-up, unrealized losses on securities were nearly $560 billion, according to the FDIC. Bank of America alone reportedly took over a $100 billion hit on its bond portfolio last quarter. And as this continues, some are saying we need to start thinking about what a government relief program would look like. And that includes my next guest calling for TARP 2.0. Let's bring in Paul Graham, Lending and Data Governance Practice Leader at Bridge2 Partners, along with Aaron Klein, Economic Studies Fellow at the Brookings Institution. Welcome to you both. Paul, go ahead. And, and um, you know, right now it's kind of calm out there in bank land. But what do you foresee? Well, um, Kelly, I, I see that the, because these unrealized losses are on the bank's balance sheet, uh, they are constricted in terms of their ability to lend. Uh, they need to take steps to reduce expenses. And they're challenged on liquidity. They're borrowing from uh, the Fed, the federal home loan banks at high rates. And um, they need to have some relief there. All right. So, Aaron, let me just kind of bring you in for some context here. And I know you're not a big fan of this argument, but help us make the case for why we might be heading to a point where something like this is being discussed. Um, are these unrealized losses, in other words, going to become very material over the next couple of years, or do you think banks can earn their way out of them? So, look, I, I commend Paul uh, for publishing a provocative piece in, in Bank Think. And he's right that a lot of bankers made some bad choices, bought a lot of low interest rate uh, environment, and a lot of them are using the federal home loan bank system, as he describes, as kind of a backdoor uh, way to get some money and some liquidity. Look, the biggest borrowers from the San Francisco Federal Home Loan Bank were SVB and First Republic, uh, banks that were deep in this bad trade. Uh, I just, but as you've seen, other banks, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citibank, have reported positive earnings. 
Uh, and in fact, their stock prices have, have risen. So what you have is some banks made bad bets and they should suffer the consequences, or as Paul said, bail out the people that made mistakes and reward the people that did well. I, I just think that, you know, uh, when you make a mistake, you should suffer the consequences. You shouldn't ask uh, Uncle Sam to bail you out. Although I, I might rejoinder to that, it might be, Aaron, that the banks took the bait, if I can quote uh, Tom Honig, former Kansas City Fed president. I mean, treasuries are exempted from risk-rated capital. They are encouraged, they are incentivized to go in and, and buy these. So yes, someone further out in duration than others, B of A may be uh, one of them, for instance. But Paul, let me turn to you. Someone say that the banks have already had a bailout because the Fed is currently accepting a lot of this stuff at par. And in the past, it would be forcing some kind of discount. So aren't they already being given a bit of a bailout here? Well, uh, Kelly, if you look at what the banks are paying on this debt that they're taking out to meet their liquidity needs, you know, uh, deposits flowing out of the bank for a variety of reasons, their need to continue to fund uh, loans, um, against what they're earning on those assets, um, there's probably a 300 basis point difference between there. So they're essentially losing money by borrowing from the Fed in order to maintain liquidity. And in looking at sort of what the banks did in terms of their investments, this is not a short-term problem. If you look at the maturities of some of these available for sale securities, they're extending out 10 years or longer. And to Aaron's point, um, this really isn't a Wall Street problem. This is a Wall Street and Main Street problem. There's a, a, a large number of smaller, mid-sized banks that are in this uh, situation, and they have fewer options than the larger banks in terms of how to work their way out of it. Yeah, Aaron, the other kind of dirty little secret of this whole affair is that, um, you know, the government needs banks to hold treasuries, right? So whatever it's going to do here, it's ultimately got to find a buyer for more treasury bonds than it's ever had to find a buyer for at a time when the central bank has stepped back. If not banks, then who? They can't give it all to relative value hedge funds. Well, look, interest rates have to be set by the markets, and at some point, deficits have consequences. It's not just treasuries. A lot of this was mortgage-backed securities, which were fed by the Federal Reserve, who pumped up mortgages, were buying mortgage securities in the name of COVID relief for a very long time after it was necessary. I and mean, a lot of these problems you know, involve the Federal Reserve and their regulatory and failures uh, at SVB and other places who are more loaded up on mortgage-backed securities than, than on treasuries. But for Paul's point, you know, the bankers are great at playing possum and saying, oh, we're in trouble. The economy is going to suffer unless you bail us out. Uh, but don't touch our bonuses. Don't dilute our equity holders. Don't reduce our dividends. All in, in Paul's proposal, uh, just help us out. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but we're not going to get you out of this maze. You made the mistake. You have to figure out your own way. Paul, quick last word. If uh, if nothing is done and. You know, what do you think the, the ultimate problem could become here if we if we fast forward the clock? Well, I think we can see some banks uh, going under um, and whether it's, uh, you know, one large bank or, um, you know, a number of smaller banks, um, you know, we could see them go under and, you know, lending is going to be restricted um, and it's just going to there if we go into a recession. Uh, you know, the bank's abilities to lend helps us get out of that.
Absolutely. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there uh, with this controversial idea uh, for our audience to ponder. Paul Graham, thanks for joining us to make your case of bridge to partners. And Aaron Klein, thank you as always joining us from Brookings today. Coming up, Sam Altman revealing OpenAI's revenue to staff. We will bring you the eye-popping numbers. That should be a mystery chart today. Can you guess uh, what they're earning? How is the new technology revealing ancient secrets? We've got some details on that as well. And before we go to break, check out Dollar General popping on the announcement that its former CEO is coming back. Very Disney-esque. Todd Vesos will retake the helm. The shares are just off their highs, up a little less than 2%. We'll be right back. A slew of headlines today around OpenAI, the startup behind ChatGPT, including new numbers showing massive sales growth. Deirdre Bosa joins us now for today's Tech Check. Deirdre, what are we learning? Yeah, so Kelly, this is reported by the information, but what it tells us is that OpenAI, sort of the darling of the generative AI space, continues to grow and grow. And as this report says, put the numbers behind that growth and a potential valuation of up to $90 billion. So the latest is that it's on track to achieve revenue this year of $1.3 billion. Okay, let me put this in context. Last year, revenue was $28 million. So that's growth of more than 4,500%. It is just explosive. We haven't seen this from a SaaS company or a software company for anyone in a very, very long time, which, yes, explains a lot of the excitement behind it. The question, though, Kelly, that in a conversation I'm increasingly having here in the Bay Area is what is the actual application of this? Yes, developers, businesses are jumping on this generative AI train, but for the consumer especially, what do we see at the end? For a company that is potentially worth $90 billion and even for our public companies that are getting boosts from this shift, there's got to be more to it than chatbots. And there was a Bloomberg article this week that discussed how Google product employees are questioning maybe the utility of BARD, its own chatbot, and the huge amount of resources that are going into generative AI. And I guess one thing that I keep hearing is that we may not know exactly the use cases yet. Kelly, I know there's a story that you were looking at, though, that could be an interesting use case for generative AI that on the surface seems kind of fun, but it has real implications. That is the ancient scroll, right? Exactly. They helped uh, decode the, the <laughs> word purple. This is a big breakthrough. Yes. What do you call people who love the color purple? I learned this for the first time today. <laughs> Paparologists? Is that right? <laughs> but Kelly, you identified this story, but essentially there's this sort of prize if you can decode ancient texts, right, that are, have been almost impossible. But in this case, um, researchers use generative AI to independently uncover the Greek word for purple um, on a scroll. And I mean, it's, it's a competition, but this does have real implications, right? And the idea that generative AI can help us understand text from the past is something that could have really wor real world implications for Absolutely. businesses, for developers, et cetera. There's numismatists, philatelists, and pepperologists, or whatever uh, you said, but I, it represents one go. of many, I think, new lines of it. Deirdre, thank you very much. We appreciate it today. <laughs> Bringing all that to us, Deirdre Bosa. Mortgage rates touching their highest level since 2000 last week, and the spread between mortgages and the 10-year is widening. Former FHA Commissioner David Stevens thinks it's time for the Fed and the U.S. government to intervene. Details next. Home builders are taking a beating, at least they were yesterday. The ETF for the home construction, the ITB hitting a four-month low. 
Tool, Pulte, and Lennar are among the top performing builders this week, though. It all comes as rates on the 30-year fixed uh, to, rose to a 23-year high, and that's prompting some home buyers to back off. In other words, compared with two years ago when rates were down at 3%, the average monthly mortgage payment at current rates is around $960 more for a $400,000 home. So should the government now step in to address this affordability crisis? For more, let's bring in former FHA Commissioner David Stevens. David, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Hi, Kelly. Great to be with you. You've got a, a proposal here that I think is going to be the first of many that we hear about how to lower mortgage rates. What would yours do exactly? Well, look, first of all, it started off as a proposal from people like me. In the last couple of days, we've seen a joint trade letter from the Mortgage Bankers Association, the National Association of Home Builders, the National Association of Realtors. And then today, the Independent Community Bankers Association joined in with the community home lenders. It seems like everybody's talking about the same concern, which is this. Uh, what created the hyperinflation were three basic items, right? One was the CARES Act passed in March of 2020, which brought a, a, you know almost $2 trillion of stimulus into the economy. The second was the Federal Reserve coming in with the largest round of quantitative easing ever in American history, uh, which drove interest rates down to the low 2% range for mortgages at its, at its lowest. And then obviously the third were supply chain issues. But this hyperinflation is, is the result of an unexpected kind of overcorrection to the COVID pandemic, which just brought too much stimulus into the economy. And now we're all paying the price with the Federal Reserve completely changing gears, creating a vacuum where they once were the largest buyer of mortgage-backed securities to not buying any. And that has resulted in a supply and demand imbalance, and that's what's driven rates up to nearly 8% today. Um, and what's unique about today's market is that the spread between mortgages and the 10-year Treasury, which is what we normally look at to shadow and, and view where mortgage rates should be, is, is much wider than it traditionally is. It's about 100 basis points wide. So the proposal is simple. Um, the MBA home builder letter says, the Fed should at minimum state that it's done with quantitative tightening um, and uh, that it should make it clear that it's over and not just uh, that they're going to keep looking forward at, at new economic changes. Right. Um, the, the second proposal suggests that it, that we should do something further, that in past economic cycles, we've seen either the GSEs, Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae, when they could put loans on their portfolio before conservatorship, they would buy up excess supply during times like this uh, or the Fed, but just pick up the slack, not go back to quantitative easing. Well, let me just jump in for up, let me just jump yeah. in for a second. So, you know, whether or not the Fed can do more is a question that relates back to the economy and also to whether people are going to now blame them for partly causing this problem in the first place by buying so much. Right. Uh, so that leaves Fannie and Freddie. And wouldn't we have to change their structure? I mean, they're in conservatorship still. So this raises the question yeah. about taking them out of it in order to be able to buy up MBS. And now having these discussions, I feel like I'm back in 2006 all over again. <laughs> well, it is it is complicated. First of all, the excess is only about $2 billion a day, which sounds like a lot to an average listener. But, you know, think that the Fed bought about $1.7 trillion between 2020 and 2022, $2 billion a day for maybe 30 or 40 days to take out the excess capacity would be incredibly impactful to rates in the short run. Not ever, never bringing them back to where they were, but certainly bringing them back 
to about 100 basis points lower than they are today. Dave, let me the ask GSEs, a, let me ask a yeah. silly question as well, because I know we're, do yeah. we need? I mean, how many people are buying a home right now compared with the past? That number feels like it's. Is this really a crisis? Well, it's really a crisis because we've also had a shortage of supply, which drove home prices up, and we have. One of the largest demographic waves of millennials all coming into their early 30s yeah. that the nation has ever seen. So the supply and demand problem is critical. And it's not affecting wealthy Americans. I mean, they may not want to pay 8%, but they'll right. pay cash. They can pay or cash. Exactly. They can afford it. Exactly. But first-time homebuyers... Dreams are being dashed here, and that's the, that's the real challenge. I think that's well said. Uh, Liz, as I said, I think this is the beginning of what's to come on this front. Uh, this is the space to watch. Dave, we'll hope you could have you back. Thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. David you Stevens. Bet. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.